and welcome to Rick Radio Community Newsless, episode 97. I'm Mick Candy. This week, we bring you the last in the Talk with Trinity series, which took place last October in TCD's Unit 18 Community Lab in Mackin Street. This week, Professor Kieran Brady discusses Sean O'Casey's Dublin Women. Mary Coakley is my name, and Community Engagement Manager. And this is our last week of six weeks of this public talk series. Um, so, what we want to say is, you know, if you think it was successful and you'd be interested in coming to more, um, let us know. Um, um, so, and we have a cup of tea and coffee at the end to celebrate for half an hour, so if you want to stay on, please do. Again, thanks to Betty and to Lorraine Malone for making this happen. Six week series wouldn't have happened without them. And thank Thanks to Dylan and to Mel um, for the recording and helping with the technical issues. And uh, final but not least, thank you very much to Professor Kieran Brady, who's given his time today to come along. Uh, former community liaison officer with Trinity, many of you have come across him, I know, and Professor of Early <coughs> Modern History and Historiography. So thank you very much and enjoy. get started than I thought, but anyway, uh, to begin with, let me start with two disclaimers which you'll understand, and one claimer which you will not like. Uh, the first disclaimer is that I am not a literary critic, I am not a playwright, I'm a mere historian, so what you're looking at here is an amateur. Uh, I've often thought uh, it might be nice to be a literary critic, I have less often thought it would be nice, and this is my second disclaimer, to be a woman. Uh, <laughs> But there it is. So there's the two disclaimers. The claimer is, and you can like it and lump it. I'm a Northsider. But, but so is O'Casey. So, you know, we Northsiders claim to have a closer association with him. In fact, I was born not so far away from Dorset Street, where he was born. And one of my earliest experiences of drama was actually working uh, then in school with Jim Sheridan and Peter Sheridan, who were mad into Sean O'Casey, as you can imagine. All that said, let's get to work. This, of course, is Eileen O'Casey. She was uh, a star of a London theatre case. Eileen Reynolds was her name. And Sean, 23 years younger than Sean, she uh, married him in 1929. But enough of this. Let me just, uh, yeah, how do we get a slideshow? Oh, yes, the next one here. Now. There we go. Sean O'Casey, born in 1880, died in 1964. Um, I don't need to read all this stuff out. Uh, born in Upper Dorset Street, like I said, and not Dorset Street, Dorset Street. Uh, his father died uh, in 1886, and poverty deepened. He moved from house to house, becomes deeply devoted to his mother. And Freudians amongst you can make what you like of that, but it certainly was a care. Uh, sent to work at 14 on the railways and in Easton's bookstores. Uh, and his elder brother put on performances of plays. This is shorter, as it were. Joined the Gaelic League, becoming secretary in 1908, but left it. He was a man very good at leaving things. Became a <laughs> member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1910, but left it. He took part in the lockout. Joined the Irish Citizens Army, but left it. Um, so, and we have a cup of tea and coffee at the end to celebrate for half an hour, so if you want to stay on, please do. Again, thanks to Betty and to Lorraine Malone for making this happen. Six-week series wouldn't have happened without them. And thank you. Yeah. 
thanks to Dylan and to Mel um, for the recording and helping with the technical issues. And uh, final but not least, thank you very much to Professor Kieran Brady, who's given his time today to come along. Uh, former community liaison officer with Trinity, many of you have come across him, I know, and Professor of Early <coughs> Modern History and Historiography. So thank you very much and enjoy. started than I thought, but anyway, uh, to begin with, let me start with two disclaimers which you'll understand, and one claimer which you will not like. Uh, the first disclaimer is that I am not a literary critic, I am not a playwright, I'm a mere historian, so what you're looking at here is an amateur. Uh, I've often thought it might be nice to be a literary critic, I have less often thought it would be nice, and this is my second disclaimer, to be a woman. Uh, <laughs> But there it is. So there's the two disclaimers. The claimer is, and you can like it and lump it. I'm a Northsider. By <laughs> but, but so is O'Casey. So you know we Northsiders claim to have a closer association with. In fact, I was born not so far away from Dorset Street, where he was born. And one of my earliest experiences of drama was actually working uh, then in school with Jim Sheridan and Peter Sheridan, who were mad into Sean O'Casey, as you can imagine. All that said, let's get to work. This, of course, is Eileen O'Casey. She was uh, a star of a London theatre case. Eileen Reynolds was her name. And Sean, 23 years younger than Sean, she uh, married him in 1929. But enough of this. Let me just, uh, yeah, how do we get a slideshow? Oh, yes, the next one here. Now. There we go. Sean O'Casey, born 1880, died in 1964. Um, I don't need to read all this stuff out. Born in Upper Dorset Street, like I said. And not Dorset Street, Dorset Street. Uh, his father died uh, in 1886. Um, poverty deepened. He moved from house to house. He becomes deeply devoted to his mother. Um, Freudians amongst you can make what you like of that, but it certainly was a care. Uh, sent to work at 14 on the railways and in Easton's bookstores. Uh, and his elder brother put on performances of plays. This is shorter, as it were. Joined the Gaelic League, becoming secretary in 1908, but left it. He was a man very good at leaving things. Became a <laughs> member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1910, but left it. He took part in the lockout, joined the Irish Citizens' Army, but left it, and <laughs> refused to take part in the Easter Rising of 1918 for very good, as it were, moral, ethical reasons, not because he was too chicken to actually go out uh, and shoot guns. Uh, in 1919, his mother died, and I think that had a very serious uh, effect on his life, but it also gave rise to an extraordinary spurt of creativity. Uh, which issued in the production, in the acceptance by the Abbey of first the shadow of a gunman, and then two more acceptances. They were, of course, Juno and the Peacock, or Juno and the Peacock, I suppose, which he means, and um, the famous play, The Plough and the Stars. His next play, The Silver Tassie, which some of you might remember, it's an anti-war play uh, about a football team. We're all against war, and we might have dubious feelings about Irish football teams at the same time, but the Abbey didn't like it, Yates didn't like it in particular, uh, and so O'Casey went into what was really effectively permanent exile. He did come back to Ireland from time to time, like Sam Beckett came back to Ireland, but never on a full-time basis, and the older he grew, the more estranged he became from Ireland, as Ireland moved both 
politically and culturally, ideologically, to the right. And O'Casey felt himself increasingly alienated from the profound conservatism uh, of, of Ireland and its politicians. He remained in exile, wrote several more plays, which would take up all of my time I've had to do it, but also wrote a wonderful three-volume autobiography, which I really advise people to dip into when you get a chance. It's still available in paperback. Isn't always true, but all the best autobiographies aren't always true. Uh, and, and so it gives, it casts quite light on, on his feelings about Ireland. But here are the plays that I want to draw your attention to. This is O'Casey's Dublin Trilogy. The Shadow of a Gunman, uh, first produced in 1923, concerning events in 1920. And I think it's important to bear these chronological jumps backwards and forwards in mind. Juno and the Paycock, except that the next year, you see the creativity that's coming out here, and set in 1922. So the Shadow is set at the height of the War of Independence and of the terror campaign being fought. Uh, by Republicans and by the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries against one another. Very tense time indeed. Juno is set at the time of the Irish Civil War, uh, when uh, Republicans, diehard Republicans, refused to accept the treaty, and those who accepted the treaty accepted the Free State, became part of the Free State Army, and so on. And then the Plough and the Stars, the big and the longest play of his, the one that's best remembered, uh, a four act play. Um, written in 1926 and accepted in 1926, but it has two time frames. It's set in November 1915, and that date is interesting in itself because we're well into the war. We're well aware that the war ain't going to be over by Christmas, but it's before the Easter Rising, so people are expecting a long drawn out war and set in a period of paralysis. It's set after the 1913 lockout as well, and a period of deep depression set of the doldrums of the Dublin working class at this time. And then of course Acts 3 and Acts 4 are set in Easter week 1916, a couple of days apart, one early in the week and the final two acts later in the week when British forces are overturning. Uh, the insurrection uh, and the last two acts of the play are set amidst the violence of that overturning. All right, that's where we are. Um, now, I want to draw your attention uh, to something that really is powerfully innovative in O'Casey as a playwright in his time, and that is the prevalence on the, not so much the domination, but the equality of strong female roles in all of the plays. Look at this, uh, there are three men on this, Daveron, the um, intellectual Monquet, Seamus Seals, who is a, a Republican, and Adolphus Grigson, who is a drunk, uh, alcoholic, uh, Ulster man, and a member of the Orange Order. Then there's Minnie Powell, of whom more later, Mrs. Grigson, of whom less, if I had more time, I'd spend more of than Mrs. Henderson, whom I won't get around to talking to at all. But look at the balance here, three versus three. In Juno and the Paycock, there's Captain Boyle, uh, Johnny Boyle, their son, Joxer Daly and Jerry Devine and Charles Bentham feature as the male, main male parts here. But Juno, she's called Juno, by the way, because she was born in June. They met in June, and their son was born in June as well, so that's where it comes from. But I suspect there's a classical um, reference being made there as well. Mary Boyle, their son, uh, um, that's the captain and Juno's son, Maisie Madigan and Mrs. Tancred. Again, I don't have much time to say about that. But look at the balance 
here of strong women characters. There are lesser characters, of course, male and female. But what makes O'Casey interesting is that he's putting on stage uh, for the same amount of time, and actually for a longer time, prominent women, women of strong force and personality, and women of tragic dimensions. Flower of the Stars is the most, as, as it were, a clear example of this. On the men's side, we have Jack Clitheroe, Peter Flynn, Covey, another Monkey intellectual like Donald Daveron, and Fluter, uh, good, the, the clue is in the name. And, <laughs> and then on the women's side, we have Nora Clitheroe, Mrs. Cogan, the famous Bessie Burgess, a different version of Protestant working class to Adolphus Grigson, Malzer, uh, Mrs. Cogan's um, disabled child, and Rosie Redmond, the first time in Irish theatre, and paid for it, by the way, that O'Casey dared, that someone dared to put on, and O'Casey's this thing, what we would now call a sex worker on stage. Didn't happen before. And when Rosie Redmond, who is presented as a perfectly respectable and uh, in powerful, persuasive uh, figure without any connotations of moral condemnation. The audience did what they did to sings. Uh, Playboy of the Western world, they got up in riot and threw bricks and sticks and so on, and Yeats came out and did what he liked to do best, condemn the populace violent. You've disgraced yourselves again, he said. He's probably right. Uh, but it is interesting here that, that O'Casey is the first to put uh, a sex worker on the stage without any of the connotations uh, of disapproval. Um, now, so my point here so far is simply to say, just look how O'Casey makes women so prominent. There's only one other playwright who does this and doesn't do it in this class, and that's Ibsen, uh, who in The Wild Duck, uh, in Ghosts, and in, of course, The Doll's House, does the same thing and is clearly an influence of Ibsen on O'Casey. And by the way, if you go through the text, you'll find several references to people reading Ibsen. And the people who are reading Ibsen are women, not men. Uh, so he's making it very clear to you where his, where O'Casey's sympathies lie. Now, here is what O'Casey's critics like to say. And by saying that, I, going back to my disclaimer, I ain't a critic. So I'm going to I'm going to let you absorb this and make your own mind up. And my plan is, having shown you the critics, to show you some clips, if they work, from, <laughs> and they lighten, uh, clips from the plays where women feature prominently, uh, and then ask you, what do you think of the critics? What do you make of it yourselves? All right. So here is the standard thing. Um, sacrifices are made for and in the name of the motherland, but the mother of flesh and blood is spurned. This is a guy called A.E. Malone. Derided, sacrificed, or ignored. Uh, the motherland is loved as an abstraction. Juno is compelled to live in a slum to see her children sacrificed, but she is ignored because she is merely a reality. Even her own son will fight for the abstraction instead of working for his mother. It's the women who suffer in O'Casey's plays, the women who are great. Is there anybody going with a titherous sense? Asks the consumptive child, Malzer. The men talk and dream, and loot and die for their dreams. The women live and die for the realities. Women possess the only kind of untainted heroism that O'Casey recognizes. That's A.E. Malone writing in the 1930s. 
is my next selection. I'm saying this without anything which is better and which is worse, though the tone of my voice might give something away. Um, later, Marxists, uh, Jack Gibbons is the selection I'm making here, but these are representative of schools of criticism of, uh, of Ocasey's place. Ocasey's women are functioning in the same ideological context of capitalist hegemony. And if you didn't know that was Marxist, it's bloody obvious it is now. Uh, they're functioning falsely, and what they're displaying is not true concrete bravery. They can't function as an heroic alternative to the pseudo-heroic male figures. They're conceived by O'Casey as part of his systematic exposure of empty heroism and his puncturing of out-of-date and deadly heroic myths. There's still only the shadow of a hero, that's meant deliberately a reference to the shadow of a gunman. In this way, the very qualities of courage and devotion which ought to be helping the people to emancipate themselves are made to function in the opposite direction, against the people, as factors contributing to their own destruction. The women suffer for the same, from the same basic disease as the men. Okay, take it as you find it. Now, feminist criticism of things, which is the latest mode of, of O'Casey criticism. O'Casey surprises the audience by staging representations of Dublin tenement women from different backgrounds, which subvert the prevailing image of powerless females in Irish drama, conferring visibility and an appropriate representation to those marginalized but strong individuals. These characters are represented as empowered subjects as they undergo a process of strengthening which enables them to surpass domineering structural forces and challenge conservative and oppressive gender expectations about power. There you go. Uh, here's O'Casey himself uh, in interviewings toward the end of his life. Uh, being asked by, anybody remember John Ross, the uh, Radio Aaron uh, journalist? You might remember, this is John Ross. <coughs> In your plays, it's the women who turn out to be the courageous ones. O'Casey, okay, women must be more courageous than the men. Courage doesn't consist in just firing a pistol and killing somebody, or taking the risk of another firing a pistol and killing you. I wouldn't call that courage at all. I'd call it stupidity. <laughs> Ross, what does a woman's courage consist in? Fortitude, patience, and understanding. Do you think that women are more courageous than men in life? Yes, they are much nearer to the earth than men are. Men are more idealistic, stupidly idealistic. They are not as realistic as women. A woman has to be nearer the earth than the man. So, that's what the man says. So, uh, and here is the dedication uh, to the last and finally most successful of O'Casey's plays, to the gay laughter. We will notice here that laughter is a scene that runs through the trilogy, along with violence and tragedy. They're very, very funny plays, if properly performed. And laughter is key, really, to an understanding of O'Casey. The gay laughter of my mother at the gate of the grave. So I have a feeling that death of the mother is a huge inspiration to that creative spurt which we saw taking place in the five years immediately after her death. But now, what I want to do uh, is draw attention to these male figures. We will get to see some of the clips. I can't tell you how much trouble I had finding them, by the way. They're not easy on YouTube. Uh, these are the stage directions of O'Casey himself, his descriptions 
uh, of his characters. And if you'll notice, there are more than stage directions. There are more like novelistic entries. They're not saying moves left, moves right. If you look at any other playwrights, directions, what they give you is she does this, she does that, and does the other. He gives a kind of character description, as though he's writing prose, uh, not um, giving guidance for the performance of a play. So here's Minnie Powell from The Shadow of the Gunman. The door opened, and Minnie, Minnie Powell enters with an easy confidence one would not expect her to possess from her gentle way of knocking. She's the girl, she's a girl of 23, but the fact of being forced to earn her living and to take care of herself on account of her parents' early death has given her a force and an assurance beyond her years. She has lost the sense of fear. She does not know this, and consequently she's at ease in all places and before all persons even those of a superior education, so long as she meets them in the atmosphere that surrounds the members of her own class. Her hair is brown, neither light nor dark, but partaking of both tints, according to the light or shade she may happen to be in. Her well-shaped figure, a rare thing in a city girl, is charming, that's O'Casey, okay, not me. I hasten that, is charmingly dressed in a brown, tailor-made costume, her stockings and shoes, are a darker brown tint than the costume, and all are crowned by a silk tam-o-shanter of a rich blue tint. Now, that's uh, her. Now, let's see what she actually is like. And this is where I ask Mel to come to my uh, thing here. Here's a little clip from many. I had many more of it, but uh, now, let's see. Move to 13. Is that right? I was read in a double if I tell you the amount of times I've heard that's Roddy Bruce last week. <laughs> and it doesn't gain. And the English Yeah, we went out. 12.55. Yeah. No, exactly. us. Okay. Um, right, well, you know, we had it when you were on. And every... Can I move? Can I move the thing at all? You sing no, like no, no. no the, the thing isn't working. Listen, I have to say this is the thing where, and it's a pity because this is one of the best clips I had. It's Kenneth Branagh and Stephen Ray uh, in Shadow of a Gunman, and Minnie, uh, who's played by Claire O'Neill, is. Um, it's a very smallish part in terms of the, it's the, it's a prominent part for women in it, but she features only. Uh, in this like, section where he is absolutely, um, Davron is absolutely enthralled by her. She is very interested in the idea that he might be a gunman, but then again doesn't really like the idea that he's going to be a gunman permanently. He likes the strength, she, he isn't a gunman, he's a spoofer. Um, <laughs> but she likes the idea that as long as he's not going to be that forever. And she is very much taken with him, and he's taken with her. Not being a gun man, he's not ready for what happens, and one of his flatmates puts a, keeps a bomb in hiding uh, for the uh, IRA to come and collect. Um, and remember, this is set in the War of Independence, and the Black and Tans raid. Black and Tans raid, and they're all of a dither, both the um, the flatmate who's played by Stephen Ray and 
Lieutenant Branagh, who plays Davram, are scared. The heroism of the gunmen disappears. Minnie takes the hidden bomb, secretes it in her room on the grounds that the men, the black and tans, wouldn't search a woman's private. That's a false assumption. They do. She's captured and she is killed in an ambush. Uh, but that is the, that's what I was trying to outline in this. Uh, Mrs. Grigson, by the way, uh, a much weaker figure in character, though not in the way it's played, is the long-suffering wife of the alcoholic Arthur Grigson, Arthur, Adolphus Grigson, and sh shows herself to be a hypocrite. Uh, while Millie is caught, she says, that awful Republican person brought us all down to this, we'll all suffer for this. When Minnie died, she says, oh, isn't it terrible she died for Ireland, she was a heroine, and so on. So here's a woman who is both uh, intelligent, brave, uh, and not committed to the cause, but committed to life on the one side, and another woman who's putting up a terrible abuse from her husband, who blows hot words and cold words. Oh yeah, that awful woman got us all in trouble. Oh, she's a heroine for Ireland, and we love her all the same. So views that, that O'Casey plays women as simple caricatures of strength, uh, or heroism, or earthiness, seem to me to be contradicted in this way. And today, we didn't get a chance to, uh, to do it next time around, okay. And now, I'm up to move to the next figure. This is, of course, Juno, uh, from Juno and the Peacock. And this is O'Casey's um, stage direction. Juno enters by the door on the right. She's been shopping and carries a small parcel in her hand. She's 40, 45 years of age, and 20 years ago, she must have been a pretty woman. But her face has now assumed that look, which ultimately settles down upon the faces of the women of the working class. That's O'Casey, that is. A look of listless monotony, and I'm looking around. A look of listless monotony and harassed anxiety. Anybody here want to claim that? Harassed anxiety. Uh, blending with an expression of mechanical resistance. Were circumstances favourable, she would probably be a handsome, active, and clever woman. Do you see how this isn't a stage direction? This is actually a, a novelist's depiction of somebody in a thumbnail sketch. Uh, but here she is now. You're in for a treat or not a treat. The only clips I could find, uh, it's all about copyright, you know, from Juno, is from a film made of Juno on the Peacock in the 1930s by no less than Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, and, and uh, it does star some uh, Irish actors and so on. Now, he's messed around with the script of the play, so it drove me crazy to try and find all the right things. But here are things, here are sections that actually do, if they work, that actually do uh, fit with the play. Okay. Alrighty. Here we go. We have lift off, I think. And again with my for the want of a nail, that's the shoe, sir. And the want of a shoe, the horse was lost. That's the paper. And the want of a horse, a man was lost. Oh, that's a jarring problem. A jarring problem. Yes, so. Shovel. You do more work than I can thought than ever you'll do with a shovel. There's a genuine job going, you'd be the other way about. Now, aim to lift your arms, the pain from your legs. Your poor wife's slave. Keep this in your mouth. 
and you gathered up around the town like a pig. Better for a man to be dead. <laughs> Better for a man to be dead. Everyone thought that he had captured him. And you only once on the water in an old boat from here to Liverpool. <laughs> Why anyone to look at you or to listen to you would take you for a second Christopher Columbus. Alright, there we go now. <laughs> so I'm moving from the paycock. Uh, will be my last time for this. There's Mary Doyle, who, by the way, is also a reader of Ibsen, both Minnie Powell and Mary Doyle read uh, Ibsen. And if I had the time, but I'm already getting the signals, shut up, <laughs> go someplace else. Uh, and so I'm going to move. Uh, Turn off the volume. Now here, now here is... What? Turn the volume off. Oh, yeah. I thought you were telling me to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> this thing here, yeah, all right. All right, uh, now play this. This is, yeah, this is the end of Juno. When she finds out. Something about Johnny. There's two policemen below wanting you. There's some poor young fella after being found. And they think, it, it, Johnny. Johnny! Mother! Mother! Poor! Hush, hush, darling. You'll... You'll soon have your own troubles to bear. Why? Why do they... think it's Johnny, Mrs. Madigan? Because, ma'am, one of the doctors knew him when he was attending with his poor arm. But <coughs> He's killed by the IRA for being a spy. alert, swift, full of nervous energy, and a little anxious to get on in the world. But so is Minnie Powell. Uh, the, what they are is a sort of people who really are intent on rising from the circumstances of Dublin tenements and making things of themselves. Uh, and not necessarily in a materialist way, but actually, as, as Minnie is prepared to go with the poet Davron, if, if he was willing to do it with her. But anyway, uh, the firm lines of her face are considerably opposed by a soft, amorous mouth and gentle eyes. When her firmness fails her, she persuades with her feminine charm. Oh, Casey. She's dressed in a tailor-made costume which she wear and wears around her neck a silver fox fur. Here is the most famous, I think, memorable sequence from, um, now this is Jack and Nora in a amorous the position. The Watch Nora in this. Nora. Displaying their charm to the bee. When I first said I loved only you, Nora. And you 
said you loved only me. The chestnut blooms gleam through the glade, Nora. A robin sang loud from a tree. When I first said I loved only you, Nora, and you said you loved only me. The golden robed daffodils shone, Nora, and danced in the breeze on the leaf. When I first said I loved only you, Nora, and you said you loved only me. The trees, birds, and bees sang a song, Nora, of happier transports to be. When I first said I loved only you, Nora, and you said you loved only me. That's all from the Community News Desk this week. We will be back with more Rings and Irish Town community events next week. My thanks to Adam and Rowan on sound and editing. From me, Mick, take care and have a great week. Thank you.